Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So this quarter in RUF, um, we're, uh, my name is Britton Wolf. I haven't met you, the campus minister for RUF, second week of spring quarter. Uh, glad y'all are here, and... Um, I would love to get to know you. If I don't, I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. I'd love to meet you afterwards and uh, talk about anything. And what we're talking about in large group this quarter is we're going through actually this sermon that Jesus preaches. Um, and the reason we're doing it is a couple of things. Last quarter we did Judges, if you weren't here. Judges is a terrifying book. And, uh, and what Judges is, is a depiction of just kind of what happens to Israel when they abandon their king. And the book spirals out of control. Israel spirals out of control in their own history. And the book ends, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, on the other hand, is saying, this is life in the kingdom. He's giving us a positive picture of what life um, under the reign and rule of King Jesus looks like. So that's why we're looking at it. And in the first, his introduction, we're kind of doing it in two parts. We did the first half last week and the second half this week. He's kind of answering the first question that we naturally have about the kingdom of God. The first question you have about anything when you consider it as a worldview, as your, as, um, your touchstone for reality and all those kind of things, is will we be happy in the kingdom of God? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, yes, that word blessed is the biblical word for happy. It's a more substantive happy than what we think of when we use the word happy. Uh, It's a lasting, deeper happiness. Um, And he's saying, yes, but you've got to change the way you think about happiness because you're doing it all wrong. Um, And so last week we said, he's saying, you've got, the way you think you become happy in your relationship with God you're doing it the, the exact wrong way. The way you think about it is you think you manufacture your best and you work really hard um, to show God your best. You hide your worst, and He's going to love you and bless you. And that's what you do. And Jesus says, that's completely wrong. You'll never be happy in your relationship with God if that's how you go about it. That pers- and pursuing that path makes nasty religious people. But bring to God your worst and see that He accepts and He forgives and He loves you, and you'll be happy. What he's doing in the second half of this uh, introduction is he's talking about our relationship with people, right? If he deals with our vertical relationship with God in the first half and our horizontal relationships in the second half. And he's going to say the same thing. We've got to completely reverse the way we think about people. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, that what you say is often mysterious and that grabs our attention and it forces us to think about it. And I pray now we would wrestle with this and your Holy Spirit would press things deep into our heart. Um, Keep us from being afraid of hearing you. Uh, Give us the courage to hear and be challenged by what you've said. Be with us in your name we pray. Amen. So this is lesson two on happiness in the kingdom of God. And if y'all remember last week I started off talking about the Chinese finger trap. as just like a visual illustration. And if you remember this, it's this little tube that you stick two fingers in, and when you try to get your fingers out by pulling, it locks in and you can't pull your fingers out. And, you know, as a little kid, that was frustrating until you realize that in order to be free, you have to do the exact opposite of what you thought. Instead of pulling to get your fingers out, you actually have to push. 
And so keep that image in mind because that's what Jesus is doing with this thing, of uh, this idea of happiness in the kingdom of God and happiness, period. He's saying, what you think, the way you think it is, it's actually the exact opposite. And I've actually been re-watching The Wire recently and reminded of the great uh, wisdom of the poet Marlo Stanfield. And uh, he said this to a security guard and he was describing life in the street. It's real simple. Just take this. Remember it. It's very simple words. He says, you want it to be one way, but it's not. It's the other way. So just remember that. That's what Jesus is saying. You want it to be one way, but it's not. It's the other way. Try to really simplify and distill that down into obvious uh, language. And what Jesus is saying in verse 7 and forward is he's saying you've got to reverse the way you think about people. Because we think that the way you get happy in relationships is when people finally relate to us the way we want them to. Right? Finding the friends, finding the lovers, getting the parents to, whoever it is in your, in, in your world that you live in, professors, you've got to get them to finally relate to you the way you want them to. They've got to understand what you want. Right? If my roommate would just fill in the blank. You know? If this person, if my parents would just fill in the blank. And what Jesus is coming to say is, guess what? That doesn't make you happy. If everybody behaves toward you the way you want them to, it wouldn't make you happy. Happiness happens when you change to serve them. You want it to be one way, but it's not. It's the other way. We think we're going to be happy if we dream our dreams for ourselves. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is happy when you actually dream for other people instead. We think people are for making us happy. And Jesus is saying you're never going to be happy that way. People are not there for you. You're there for them. That's how I made you. That's how you experience joy. Because that's what I am for you. And Jesus is saying that's the happiness of the kingdom of God. So what I want to do is I want to go through a couple of these beatitudes. We're actually going to start in verse 8 and then come back to verse 7. Because the verse, verse 8 says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we don't like that because this is what we like. We like... Blessed is the one who never gets caught, right? Because they will always look good. That's the opposite of this beatitude, and that's our instinct, isn't it? Avoid getting caught. Because if you avoid getting caught, if you keep that life, your public life and your hidden life separate, and make sure no one finds out about the hidden life, then you always look good. That's the path to happiness. Keeping the hidden life hidden. Maintaining the public life, Right? And short term, that seems really nice. That's what we're all aiming for all the time. We're all hiding the hidden life, trying to avoid getting caught, maintaining the public life. And what I hope for you is if you feel that discord and that dissonance between those two lives, what you're hiding and trying to keep from getting caught in that public life, I hope that tonight you'll bring that hidden life out into the open with someone, before Jesus, talk to somebody. Because here's what we keep thinking. I don't want to get caught about this thing for a while, but in a couple of years that won't be feasible, and then I'll integrate my life and I'll become a whole person, right, without any secrets. You think that tomorrow or next month or after you graduate, whether it's regard to cheating, whether it's regard to sexual addiction, whether it's regard to any kind of hypocrisy, that like, for a season I can manage this and then I'll become a whole person later. That's not true. It starts tonight. And if you think you're going to do it tomorrow and put it off tonight, you won't. And if you think you're going to do it after you graduate, if you just put it off through college, you won't. 
We all think we'll be happy if we don't get caught. And what will happen, because Jesus loves you, one of the best things that's going to happen to you, one of the best things that's happened to me is you're going to get caught. And in that moment, you have two options. You can come clean, whatever it is, whatever they are, right, those things. And you can come clean in that moment in a sweet way. This is what coming clean really feels like, and it's freeing, and you'll actually become happy, is you'll actually say, it's worse than you thought. Right? When we get caught, we only get caught for like 70% of it, maybe only like 20% of it. You have the opportunity to actually say it's worse than you thought. You can do that. Or you can justify and mitigate and deny and shrink the trouble and continue your double life, right? And what Jesus is saying here is like, no, 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 no. Blessed are the pure in heart. And what does he mean by that? Because at first glance, we think pure in heart means sinless. That's not what he means. It's not moral perfection. This is what pure in heart means. Singular devotion. It means you get to be one person. Someone that can really love something. Here's the thing is, you can be singularly devoted to one thing and still have a lot of problems. Right? You can love football and not be that great at it. Right? You can actually have a pure heart toward Jesus and still have a lot of issues in your life as a Christian. He's calling us to singular devotion. Another way to think about it is this. Pure in heart means sincerity. And sincerity means this. You want Jesus to take over all of your heart and all of your life, that you know there are parts of your life that are a mess and you want His redeeming love to come and work in those places, even the places you've been hiding. And a, a way to imagine this is that your life is a shuttered house. And Jesus has burst into the front door in the front hall and He's flipped on the lights. And He's saying, we're making this place alive again. We're bringing light here. And He's in your front hall and He's in your living room and he's going, his intention is to go through your entire house and fling open doors and fling open closets and turn on lights and bring light and life into every corner of your life. And a pure in heart means that when Jesus flings open the doors you've never let anybody see into, you don't slam it and say, don't go in there. And you pray instead like David prayed, God created me a clean heart. Go there. I'm afraid it's going to be messy. I'm going to be embarrassed, but I need you to open. I need you to bring your light into these places. Jesus wants to open the door to your sex life and open it up and say, guess what? I'm Lord over your sex life. And we're all running to the door and slamming and saying, no, 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 I don't want you involved in that part of my life. I have my own ideas on it, and I don't want you involved. And Jesus, he's prying that door open. And pure in heart means you're saying, I know you have to go there, Jesus. And of course, his goal is always redemption and the beautifying of those rooms. Jesus wants to open the door to your ambition. And, you, and, and pure in heart says, Jesus, I know you have to go to work on me and my ambition. He wants to open the door to the way you view money, the way you think about anger and forgiveness of people that really, really piss you off, the way you think about evangelism, the way you think about pride. He's going through the house and he's flipping open doors and he's turning on lights. And when he does, it's blinding and it's frustrating and it's disorienting. But the pure in heart recognizes and understands, Jesus, I want you in all these places. The heart that keeps Jesus just in the living room and in the entrance hall won't see God. Right? That's the promise here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Now, why will you not see God as long as you just kind of keep Jesus in the kind of main corridors of your life that are safe to keep Him in? This is why. Because as long as you're doing that, what you're actually doing is you're actually just custom building a God that fits your preferences. In other words, you're not even looking at the real God. You're looking at a self-projection, a self-projected deity. You won't get to see God. You won't understand Him. You won't be worshiping a God, the true God. You'll be worshiping a God that you've custom built to suit you. And it won't be very compelling for very long because that's not an interesting God or the true God. And pure in heart means that when Jesus speaks to us on these things, we don't mitigate or modify or ignore or patronize Him, but we struggle to take hold of His words and rhyme. Never getting caught is easier and deadlier. A pure heart is harder and it's happier. And that's what Jesus is telling us. We'll look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what we think, what our natural instinct is, is blessed are those who get people back. Right? Blessed are you when you can get people back who did that to you or have done those things to you. Because if you can always get people back, you'll never lose and you'll always be feared. You'll be on top. That's how we think happiness comes. That's our instinct. It clicks in immediately when we're wronged. Right? Get good at getting people back. Do you think that makes people happy? Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessed are the merciful. Who do the exact opposite of what our heart and our minds immediately say when we're wronged. Because, right, vengeance wants to get people back. Mercy is the exact opposite. It actually seeks to, re- actually to relieve the consequences of sin and evil in people's life. Right? Relieving the consequences of sin in people's lives instead of actually enforcing the consequences of sin in people's lives. Grace and mercy are related, but they're a little bit different, and they go hand in hand. The way Stott, John Stott said it is, grace deals with the pardon of sin... And mercy deals with relieving people of the consequences of sin. So you can imagine it this way. Grace says, I forgive you freely. And mercy says, and now I'm going to serve you. Simple example, if you steal, grace says, I forgive you of that. And mercy says, and now here's some money to buy what you need. What does it mean to be merciful? It doesn't mean someone who does good things from time to time. Micah 6, 8, God uh, explains it this way. The prophet does. It's, uh, to be merciful is to love mercy. Not simply do it when it fits in your calendar, but it's a disposition. It's a heart thing. It's not some actions that you perform periodically when you have time to volunteer, but being merciful... You can't, you can't turn that off. It's something that's in you. It goes with you whether or not you're volunteering at Sacred Road or you're just studying in a study group or you're home with your frustrating family or you're at a fraternity party. Merciful means it's your disposition. It means it's something you love. That you show mercy because it emanates from your character and from your heart. Not even that you showed mercy because they deserved it. It's something that you give out of fullness. You do because it's in your nature. And what's, what makes other people candidacy, candidates for mercy is not that they're good enough to deserve it, but simply that they need it. So what is, 
what is the relationship you want revenge in right now? Recompense. And maybe those aren't words you want to use because they sound too strong, but the relationship where you wish other people hurt because of what they've done. Right? You should write down that name or those names and then begin to pray and imagine what would mercy look like. Do you think you will be happy if you continue to harbor bitterness to them and think of very clever, subtle ways to injure them? Do you think that will make you happy? Jesus is saying, I don't know, the key to happiness is mercy. And the promise with that is that those who are merciful receive mercy. That doesn't mean you earn mercy from God by showing enough mercy in the first place. That doesn't square with anything else Scripture says. What it does mean is that being merciful is not a precondition, but a necessary consequence of God's grace in your life. You will know that you have rested in the joy of God's mercy because it will start flowing out of your own life. God is subverting our ideas about happiness right here, isn't he? Happiness is not the result of getting people back. We think happiness comes when, when, when other people are suffering or other people are experiencing the consequences of sin, whatever that looks like, whether it's self-inflicted or other-inflicted, we think happiness is one of two things. Either A, inflict pain on the people that deserve it, right, or insulate ourselves from the people that are needy. And Jesus is saying happiness is not the result of inflicting pain on people, that need it, or insulating yourself from people that need it. Happiness is a result of restoring people who need it. And if you want to be happy, you have to be going into the needs of others, especially those who don't deserve it. Blessed are those who are merciful. Thirdly, blessed the peacemakers, um, for they are the sons of God, shall be called the sons of God. And the opposite of that, the worldly virtue of that, is this. Blessed are you when you hold no opinion too firmly and don't offend people. Right? Blessed are you when you uh, can publicly manage your own opinions so that you never state them too strongly and they never really exclude or upset or challenge anyone and everybody can maintain their contradictory opinions with each other but never actually deal with it. Right? That's what we're aiming for. Right? Blessed are you if you can manage your opinion and never state it or feel it too strongly and everyone will be happy with you. Right? That's our worldly virtue. Jesus is saying something different. What does it mean in the Bible to be a peacemaker? The biblical principle of peace is called shalom. It's too big to talk about in one point, in one night. Uh, shalom is everything the way it should be. It's much more than the absence of conflict. It's much more than simply inner calm. It's human flourishing, history flourishing, our souls and our bodies and creation and work and relationships all working the right way. And in some ways, the whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, this is what it was supposed to look like. And this is what it looks like to begin to live in the kingdom of God again. But Jesus, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's actually speaking about the first place peace was shattered. The first crack in creation that began to splinter and break everything else. And what he's talking about is he's talking about our relationship with God. He's saying that crack, that splinter, that break is the thing from which all other flourishing was frustrated and broken. And so when he talks about peacemaking, he's talking about people being restored to God, to His love and to His favor. Because what is, in the Bible, but in life, when the foundation of something is cracked... 
No matter how much you put in new fixtures or do more painting or redecorating, disrepair and dysfunction will always be there. You have to deal with the thing at the bottom, the first thing, the main thing, the foundation. To be a peacemaker is to participate in restoring the foundational relationship between God and people, the crack from which all the other cracks emanated. So kind of in, in short form, this is, this, we could spend all day on this point. The brokenness, the explanation for the brokenness of the world, according to the Bible, and everybody has an answer to that question, what's wrong, Christian or not. If you don't think, I don't think I have an answer to that question, I don't think that question very often. You do have an answer. Just look at the way you use your time and your resources and look how your anxiety is directed. That teaches you about what you think are the answers to what's wrong. The Bible says the crack, the first thing that started breaking creation and everything else was the shattering of the relationship of love between God and man. And it was broken when we started to doubt the love and the goodness of God. That was the first sin was just simply thinking, I'm not sure God is good, and I'm not sure I can trust Him. And Paul describes that condition in Romans 8, saying that is the mind of the flesh, and it is hostility towards God. That's the word he uses. It's hostility. And we think, that doesn't sound like hostility. It just kind of seems like a reasonable doubt. You may think, whether or not you're a Christian, I don't, I don't think I'm hostile towards God. I wouldn't describe, uh, you wouldn't use that word to describe our relationship. But I want you to think about hostility in a little bit more sophisticated way. And this is borrowing from Tim Keller um, when he talked about hostility between God and man. You think, I'm not, I'm not angry towards God. I don't have a lot of negative emotions toward Him. Maybe you do, but most of us probably think, like, I don't think that's me. Imagine this situation. You loved someone dearly. They, were like, they had your heart, Right? friend, lover, child, whatever it is, someone, they had your heart, you gave your, you just, so much affection for them, and they were either indifferent or completely ignored you. How would you feel? But you actually have to take it a step further to understand where God is. If you loved them, and you had given them all of your best, you had given them great things, you had given them your most precious things, to enjoy. And not only were they indifferent towards you or ignored you, but they actually gave all of their affection and love to someone or something else and gave that other thing or that other person all the credit for what you had done for them. How would you feel? Our lack of feeling towards God, maybe you don't feel antagonistic toward Him, but what most of us feel, myself included, a lot of time is just lack of anything toward Him. Our lack of feeling toward God, and especially the fact that we love a bunch of other things in place of God, is actually the height of hostility. And maybe for Christians, we don't think, well, I don't have enmity with God. But what is it for Christians when we know God loves me, He has given His Son for me, He died for my sins, He's promises and blessed us with the presence of His Holy Spirit in our life, He's guaranteed the resurrection, all things will be new again. And then we grumble against God because we don't have a girlfriend or boyfriend. That's the residual hostility still there. Right? That is, we're brats. That's what we are. God has given us so much and then we grumble because of our job situation or our major situation. What more could He have given us to show us how much He loves us? And then we're grumbling. 
right? That's our hostility. Now, how does Jesus, how does God make peace with that? He does it by the death of His Son, Jesus. He comes and He endures the wrath of God that He had against us because of our hostility towards Him. Ephesians 2, Paul actually says, Jesus is our peace. He reconciled us to God in His body on the cross, thereby killing the hostility between God and man. Jesus takes away the wrath of God by becoming our substitute. So there's no longer hostility between us and God. And God sends, our, sends His Holy Spirit into our lives in order to show us our hearts. This is how God is continually making peace in our hearts. He's taken away what was between us. And this is what the Holy Spirit then does in the life of a Christian. It's a spotlight in our life that comes and shows us the deep parts of our hearts that are still at war with God. And that's life as a Christian, right? Is Jesus throwing open doors, the Holy Spirit doing His work, and you seeing like, oh, there are pockets of resistance, sometimes small ones, sometimes big ones, against God. And the Spirit begins to work on our rebellious hearts towards God. And what He does is that hostility dies simply in the showing of it in a lot of ways. When we actually let the Spirit do what He's doing and the Word do what the Word does, which is reveal us, and we finally say, we stop justifying and mitigating and denying, but we just say like, Okay, that thing in me, that's just, I hate the way God made that. that. That thing in me that says, I don't like the way God talks about money, that's just hostility towards Him. I don't trust Him and I don't like Him. When you begin to name those things, they actually begin to die. They begin to wilt. That is the Holy Spirit in work, at work in your life when you start calling sin, sin. And sin begins to lose its power when you start calling sin, sin. It has a ton of power over you when you're justifying it and denying it, and minimizing it. Hostility is actually put to death in our life um, when we let the Spirit do that work. And the good news of God's, for, uh, of God's forgiveness and His love in Jesus, it melts our hearts. And what happens when you begin to experience all of these good promises of God, you start to want peace with God for everyone. And that's what a peacemaker is, is someone who wants peace and acts for peace with God for everyone. And, it, and that means it involves this word we're all uncomfortable with, which is called evangelism. And we all think that's the weirdest part of Christianity. Christians and non-Christians think it's the weirdest part of Christianity. But if you, you, you've heard me talk about this before, so I won't belabor it. It's not the weirdest part of Christianity. It's actually maybe the most normal part of Christianity. Because what all of us do, naturally and instinctually, all the time is encourage and invite friends and strangers to enjoy awesome things we've discovered. We all do that all the time. Everybody did a lot of evangelism today. You recommended something that you like to someone that you met, whether a stranger or you know them well. Right? We recommend movies, classes, restaurants, events, clothes, all kinds of things because we are naturally evangelists. Everybody is, especially and including the person who says no one should do evangelism for their religion. That's evangelism. That's saying, here's a way of thinking that everybody should adopt. You know what that is? That's evangelism. We're naturally evangelists. We're never turning off. Got to get over that if it makes you uncomfortable. If it makes you uncomfortable, that just means you're evangelist for something else. That's okay. We can talk about it. Right? When you experience the peacemaking of God in your own life, you start to invite and encourage others to come and discover the peace of God. 
And that means there needs to be people in your life now that you're praying for, you're thinking about, and you're talking to, and you're pouring into, hoping that they come to know the peace of God who is Jesus. And the reason peacemakers are called sons of God is because at that point, you'll be in the family business. And you'll feel like you're co-laboring with your dad, and that's a happy place. The last one, and uh, it'll be very brief, is uh, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And, of course, the worldly sentiment is this. Blessed are you if you're popular. Because everybody loves those people. Right? What Jesus is saying is there is always pushback in the kingdom of God. And if you begin to embody the heart of Christ in your relationships in the world, Jesus always says the, the students will be treated like the master was treated. Two things are going to be happen. Some people are going to be attracted and some people are going to be repelled. And one of the ways you know that you're beginning to participate in the life of the kingdom is that you're going to experience both. And the way one pastor said it, if you only ever make people happy, then that actually means you're a coward. And if you only ever piss people off, that actually means you're smug and obnoxious. But if you're beginning to live as Christ, the way he's called us, then both things are going to happen simultaneously. <laughs> I don't know if that makes people happy or not, right? But that's the way it is, and it'll be hard. But it will not get you. That's what we're afraid. It will not get you, because look at how the Beatitudes close. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'll just close talking a little bit more about what we did at Sacred Road, but specifically talking about the Granberries there. Uh, Chris and Mary Granberry moved there 12 years ago. And um, they moved from a big church in Birmingham out there. They moved their family there. They raised their children there. Um, They didn't isolate or insulate their children from what was going on. They needed their children to co-labor with them because the task has been so difficult. And this is what they have done on the reservation for the last 12 years. They've loved mercy and they've been peacemakers. They see the communal and the systemic and the individual brokenness. They see families shattered by poverty. They see orphans. What's amazing about being there and hanging out with them and the fact that they've been there for 12 years is they're still actually, literally, in the sense of the word literally means literally, not metaphorically, which is how we often use literally. They literally... 12 years in are still crying every day. The Granberries are. That is the heart of someone who loves mercy. Mary Cranberry grad every single day we were there. For these children who've been mistreated and abandoned. Because she loves those children. Because she's full of mercy. Because she wants to relieve suffering in their lives. She's a mother of the motherless, literally, not metaphorically, Chris is a father to the fatherless. They're friends to the friendless. They feed hungry people, literally. Again, this is not a metaphor. They put roofs over the, uh, over the poor. They're full of mercy, and they're peacemakers. They're proclaiming the gospel every day to all these people, that th- th- these Native Americans, whose situation will improve moderately but not much over the course of their life, they're bringing the good news that they are loved and received by their king, by Jesus. And why Elizabeth and I are going to try to go this summer and take the girls, you should go and you should spend time with the Granberries, is because this is what's awesome about it. They experience a form of blessedness that I haven't seen anywhere else. They have given up their lives. 
They've given up. They've really given up. Actually, a lot of their children's educational and future professional dreams because they're getting this bizarre education on the reservation. They've sacrificed the future of their family for people that no one cares about. And nobody's ever going to know about the Granberries outside of this room and a handful of other places. They cry a lot, and they're exhausted, and they're the happiest people I've ever met. And they're happy because they gave up all their dreams in life in order to dream for these people that no one else cared for. The Granberries talk to everybody on the mission trip. They're the most alive people I've ever met. And when we're in the business of chasing our own dreams, and you know this, and we feel it at Stanford, we're all trying to act like we're alive, but we're zombies. There's sun, and we're all good-looking and young and everything, so we think we're all alive, but we know we're not. The most alive people I've ever met gave up on their dreams and started dreaming for the care and love of others. We think, if I get everything sad out of my life, I don't want to be sad about my own sins, so I'm going to minimize it. I don't want to be sad about other people's issues, so I'm going to craft a social life that doesn't ask too much of me and keeps me comfortable. If I get everything sad out of my life, I'll be happy. And that's not true. We just end up being polite narcissists, right? Or residents of Silicon Valley. Those terms are basically (laughs) interchangeable, right? Mary and Chris, on the other hand, took and trusted the heart of Christ, which is to rush headlong into sadness, to grieve their own sin before the grace of God, and to grieve and then act to rectify what is sad in the lives of people that nobody cared for. And they're happier than anybody I've ever met. That's the kingdom of God. So the question for you is, what does it look like to dream for others instead of yourself? Not Thursday at 8 when you can go to street life ministry. Period. 24, day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not dream for others within the confines of your schedule, but trust the word of your Heavenly Father who loves you and actually knows better than you what can make you happy. If you're a parent one day, you're going to experience this. When your children are small, you realize, I know how to make you happy better than you do. And that's how God feels toward us. He's like, I'm telling you the key to happiness right here. You think, hold on to my dreams, hold on to my dreams, get all the pain and sadness away, and that's going to make you happy. And God's saying, I've made this world. It's broken, but I understand how it works. I know how to make you happy. You've got to let go of your dreams and start to serve and love people and rest in my grace. Then you'll be happy, right? But we're like, no, that's not true. I'm going to hold on to my dreams, right? You'll know that you're entertaining this question and beginning to kind of walk in the ways of the kingdom of God because at first you're going to feel nervous about it. You're going to feel, but not that, but not that way. And you're going to have strong doubts about it because it won't make sense. And that means you actually heard Marlo Stanfield who's just talking about Jesus when he said, see, we actually the whole time we thought it was one way, but it's not that way. It's another way. It won't make sense and you'll be happy for the first time in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we're challenged by these words. And they are hard to take into the center of our hearts. But I pray that we would know we could trust your character, that you love us, that this is your wisdom and your goal for us is actually happiness. Be with us, Father God. In your name we pray. Amen.